Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. You just listened to Lucy. That's Lucy McWilliams, my daughter, as you know, new single. Dad. Is, I know, I know. It's an embarrassing dad, John. But it's, <laughs> yeah. I think it's a banger. Yeah, I, think it's, I can just hear her going, oh, dad, stop. I know, I know, I know. But so it's that was, brilliant, Mac. That was Lucy. I think it is a banger. It's got that really lovely end of summer, summertime feel to it. So, uh, again, we're going to play the whole thing on the far side of the podcast that's Lucy McWilliams on Spotify her new song Break My Own Heart now John as you always break my heart for, for <laughs> many years but of I a tried, relationship Mike. I know I know it's it's difficult what is on your mind my friend because we're going to be doing the economics of weed this week John what's been on your mind what's been on my mind well quite a few things actually but I think the one thing that stood out to me this week that's really pissed me off actually is a bit of housing shenanigans going on with your man, Robert Troy, in Paul TD. A fella I'd never heard about. Yeah, I know, I know. Week. He's Longford Westmeath. Ah, uh, you're in the woods. What, 11 properties. And, and, but, but not only that, and he's nine them rented out, but not only that, but he was in receipt of housing assistance payments for five tenants. It was all, it just stank to high it's, heaven. It's just the classic Irish schlieving conflict of interest, nod in a wink, sure you know yourself. Oh, Jesus, I was caught, therefore I'll apologise. Yeah. You know. And but, it, it, but, that, but that apology is, I, I'm sorry for being caught and not for what I did. But it, it, also, it also goes to the root of this nexus between politicians 
land, property, tenants, the housing crisis. And those who make legislation on housing should have no vested interest in housing over and above their single primary residence. That should be the rule. And if you own more than your own house, right, you should not be allowed to give any opinion about housing, rent, policy, because you have a vested interest, your pockets are lined. And consequently, no matter what anybody says about it, people are biased by their own back pocket. And that's the end of it. Yeah. And I mean, Fianna Fáil, Neil Martin, Varadkar, whoever, just said, just go. Yeah. Irish government will not be impacted negatively by the departure of this chap whose name I'd never heard of until this week. But And the last thing I'd say about it, Mac, is that issues like this and guys like this is just a gift to the likes of Sinn Féin. And it sums up why people are so frustrated with the sitting government and with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, because there's always been this kind of, you know, backhanded stuff, kind of skirting the edges of the law and all that kind of stuff. And it just pisses people off, like me. I'm pissed yeah, it, off. It, it, pissed off from Stillorgan. Yours pissed yours, Mr. Angry Stillorgan. But the thing is, John, also, you know, it's low-level shite. You know, it's Mickey Mouse shite. You know, it, this is not sure. corruption at a high level. This is kind of pound shop conflict of interest nonsense. And it's yeah. always the thing. And it's, your man should just, just go. Be decent. Go. Fuck off. Right? You've had your time. Now go. Right? Yeah. You shouldn't be representing the people. End of story. That's it. Now, speaking of politicians, John, today we're going to talk about weed. This is going to be a podcast, not a podcast. Hey, I like it. (laughs) We're going to be talking about the legalization of weed, the economics of the legalization of weed. Well, we spoke before about, you know, the war on drugs and how the war on drugs just was a massive failure. Yeah, so it's the only war that actually, not only was a massive failure, more drugs being used. Much more potent drugs being used. Yeah. Huge, huge levels of usage. So clearly the war on drugs hasn't worked. Much greater supply, much greater profits for criminal gangs, much greater cost to society in terms of cops, police, security, courts, justice, yeah. prisons. Yeah. Yeah. We can go on and on and on. So, John, we're going to go and talk to a very interesting academic, a lawyer, Niall Nelligan, who has looked at comparative statistics about the legalization of weed between Colorado, Ireland, Canada. What's the facts on the ground? What's the state of play? And now that the Germans are about to legalize weed, the fact is where Germany goes, Europe follows and Ireland follows after that. Now, many, many years ago in Dunleary, during election times, an unusual eccentric man called Ubi Dwyer used to cycle around Dunleary going for elections against the great and good of Fine Gael and Fine Gael and the Labour Party and ministers and also to carry on with one message, which was legalise weed. This was a message that he articulated <laughs> over many, many, many campaigns. He was a particularly interesting man. Unfortunately, the good burgers of Dunleary, despite their private habits, decided in public not to support Mr. Ubi Dwyer. But it always we, struck me. We all did, though, didn't we? Exactly. Yeah, we always voted for <laughs> Ubi. But uh, yeah, he got, he got a very large share of the vote in a small uh, estate called Windsor Park, uh, which was populated by uh, 19-year-olds at the time who were voting for the very first time. But his message was interesting. It was that by making cannabis, weed, whatever you want to call it, illegal, you simply funnel 
the money into the hands of criminals, you are making something which is largely, largely at the same level of alcohol illegal, and in so doing, you're criminalizing an entire sector of the population. Now, that was regarded as a radical view a good few years ago. Today, it's regarded more of a mainstream view. Many, many states have legalized weed in the United States and Canada in particular. All around Europe, there's changes to drug legislation. And the reason is simple. The war on drugs doesn't work and hasn't worked and will not work. And John and I are delighted uh, to have on the podcast today, Niall Nelligan, a lawyer, an academic at, which used to be, it's TUD, Technical University of Dublin. So explain to me now, you had almost an epiphany as a barrister down in the court, seeing all these drug-related court cases and probably saying to yourself, hold on a second, this really isn't working. Was that the sort of way you came to this? Yeah, absolutely, David. It kind of started one day when I was in the district court. Uh, I witnessed a young man, who's about 19 years of age, uh, being prosecuted for possession of a very small amount of cannabis. And something in my mind sort of said, you this there's something not right about this. It really doesn't make sense. And I remember kind of looking at the judge and getting the feeling the judge didn't think that this made sense either. But, you know, the law is the law and you have to follow it and that's the way it goes. And so afterwards, the kind of germ was, you know, seemed kind of sown in my mind as, why is it that cannabis is prohibited? And anyway, around... Uh, 2014, I suppose you had the first two states, Colorado and Washington, who had voted to regulate cannabis for non-medical adult use in 2012. Those two markets were coming on stream. And it was shortly after, I suppose, Ming Flanagan or Luke Flanagan had introduced the regulation of cannabis bill into the Oireachtas, so it was defeated. And um, I said, decided, you know, hold on a second. Why not find out why it is, in fact, prohibited? And so, you know, I took my primary degree in history. I decided to go looking. And what I discovered really kind of amazed me that the origin story for cannabis prohibition was really unusual. And it arose really international controls to begin with back at the Second Opium Convention in 1925. And again, I think that's important to clarify that this convention had nothing to do with cannabis. But it arose because there was a dispute between the United States and Britain over opium controls. Opium was the biggest export. British controlled India. And one of the big exports, of course, was Indian hemp. And at this point in time, America is in the midst of alcohol prohibition, having passed the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, basically putting restrictions on the production, sale, and export of alcohol. And really to understand the origins of that, you go back into the 19th century, the Antony Saloon League, temperance, and a curious relationship with the Ku Klux Klan. But we'll come to that oh. in due course. There was a very strong... It's a, fascinating, it's a fascinating history, actually, the history of the temperance movement in the United States. And race front and centre. Race, and basically race front and centre, Italian and Irish immigrants not being really appreciated by uh, the more waspish members. Really interesting stuff. Really interesting. Oh, it's, it's a fascinating. And I would say for anyone who you know wants to find out more, really go back and have a look at this, and it might change your mind as to why the circumstances of international drug controls as they exist are based on very shady and rocky foundations. But anyway, during the course of this Second Opium Convention in 1925, there was this Egyptian diplomat who was 
a religious conservative, I think that's a kind way of putting it, decided to bandstand and put hashish pretty much on the agenda. And of course, the motivation for this is, of course, the Islamic or Muslim belief about intoxicants. But there was also an ulterior motive because Egypt's major cash crop and what it earned a huge amount of revenue was from cotton. We all know that. And of course, what happens is you have this large importation of Indian hemp coming from India by the British who have some sort of protectors over Egypt at the time. And so there's a tet to tet But there's also kind of a, there's an Irish dimension to this of a diplomat called McWhite, <laughs> who was stirring things up between um, the Americans and the British and uh, released, I suppose, figures that were kind of confidential about the profits from opium uh, to, I think it was the Chicago Tribune, and stirred it up. And either way, the delegates there who really knew nothing about Indian hemp, certainly nothing about cannabis, thought this was a good idea to place a restriction. The British Medical Association were up in arms. They were against this. Uh, The British were not happy whatsoever. And the sort of prohibitionist side of the Americans thought this was a good idea, something now to add to their international narcotics controls, which they had been driving in tandem with alcohol prohibition. So that's sort of the origin of the international control side. I could bring you into the United States, which is a very fascinating story. I don't know if we have time for that today. Go for it, go for it, go for it. I mean, all these stories, all these stories are fascinating because, again, what people want to know is why is this banned? Where does it come from? Who is behind it? And more probably interesting as we move along in the chat, Niall, is the way in which inertia sets in and once something's banned, well, then it's banned. And reassessing that is the difficult thing. So I think the Mm. history is fascinating. Let's go for it. So the real, I suppose, (laughs) challenging or individual who is responsible for making cannabis prohibited internationally is Harry Ainslinger. So who was Harry Ainslinger? Harry Ainslinger was the son of a Swiss uh, father and German mother, an immigrant to to the United States. He was born in Pennsylvania at the end of the 19th century and worked on the railroads, but had this spectacular and meteoric ascent through the United States bureaucracy and a very fortuitous marriage to the niece of Andrew Mellon, who I know you've discussed in the past. Yeah, the banker. The banker. Andrew Mellon, a banker from Tyrone, whose father was from Tyrone. And he was the man who said, sell, 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 at the top of the market, or actually when the stock market was crashing. And when people sell, sell, sold, 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 the thing went down even further. He was the American Treasury Secretary in pre-Great Depression. This is it, absolutely. And so he's married to, uh, Ainslinger is married to Mellon's niece, and his rise is quite meteoric, but he gets a job in the Federal Bureau of Prohibition. So he's, uh, you know, a prohibitionist. He also has what we would classify today as unambiguously racist views. He's an enterprising bureaucrat, and um, he's basically given control over the narcotics section of the Federal Bureau of Prohibition. But then what happens is the Republican Party go out of power. Mellon is no longer there to kind of promote him. In comes Roosevelt and the Democrats. They made it quite clear they're going to get rid of alcohol prohibition. And Ainslinger 
is worried that this is his career down the tubes. So what happens is he's looking around for something that will kind of boost his profile and justify his existence. And a number of states in the United States in the early part of the 20th century had put restrictions on cannabis. And these were states in the Southwest where there were large immigrant populations of Mexicans and also the likes of Louisiana, where there was a thriving jazz scene among African-Americans. And so this played to the prejudice of the nativist Americans, not Native Americans, just in case anyone kind of misconstrues the two. Nativist Americans, as David has pointed out in previous podcasts, are the kind of Anglo-Saxon and white Americans who have been there since time immemorial and looked at anyone who basically came from Ireland, Eastern Europe, Italy, and whatsoever as, you know, immigrants. And these, are, these are the men behind the fantastic movement, the Know Nothings, the which, know, were, yeah. which were, and the, the actual movement was the Order of the Star Spangled Banner which was the original title of it. And they were, yeah. Anyway, anyway we, we digress, but it's, it's really interesting because it's, it's the layers of American history that we're talking about that funnel these rather inconsequential pastimes into policy, and then policy becomes a war on drugs in our generation. Yeah, this is it. So basically what happens is the federal government really try, with Ainsinger, trying to gain control of the state's policies over narcotics and drugs. And marijuana, even though most Americans have no idea what it is, they don't understand the difference between hemp and, you know, the controlled drugs, blah, 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 long story. But anyway, in 1937, he gets the Marijuana Tax Act. And this is the first kind of piece of legislation that puts licenses, puts taxes, restricts production, and incrementally, over the next three decades, he starts turning the screw and making it much more difficult. And it destroys the legitimate American hemp industry. So for those who are not familiar with it, hemp has 50,000 product users. We've been using it since time immemorial. Hemp is cannabis. Cannabis is hemp. Let's not forget that. And we have to distinguish, of course, between the narcotic side, which comes from the buds and the trichomes, and the stalks, the fibers, and the seeds, which have all these product uses. But Ainslinger destroys the hemp. Can I, can, I, can I just stop you there? Is it true that Ainslinger also wanted to make the use of the word marijuana? more ubiquitous because it sounded much more foreign. Yes, this is true. So in, in explain the, that one, actually. I, don't, I, don't get that. I think the guy, because marijuana to the average, to the average English speaker is an unusual word. Yeah. And it sounds very foreign because it's originally Spanish. Yes. yes. And of course, then it located with Mexicans and Latin Americans and people yes. who were alien and people who were different. Okay. I think that's the, the, the story, isn't it? Yeah, you know, there's a couple of stories, whether it comes from the Marijuana Islands of Mexico or it's slang that derived from a brothel, uh, Maria Iwana, two uh, names, Maria. Proprietors. Uh, proprietors. But it's, it's a slang <laughs> use of the word. And then it's used quite cleverly, first by the Yellow Press in the southwestern states, the Hearst Press, and then Ainslinger sees his opportunity to build his empire, you know, in narcotics controls. And what he does is very cleverly, he goes to Madison Avenue, he finds the ad men, he makes films, he, you know, exploits the stories really that relate to an unrelated 
drug called loco weed, which is grown on the on the plains, which is which is toxic. John yeah. smokes that regularly. Yeah, uh, which has nothing to do with marijuana. Right it's too expensive, Mike. It's too expensive. Um, <laughs> he takes these few incidences, which become known as the Gore Files, and creates this film Reefer Madness, and um, you know, kind of frightening of Middle America and people who don't know into the dangers that your daughter will be attacked by African-American men and Hispanics. And, you know, you'll have axe-wielding murderers if you smoke a bit of pot. One toke is all you need to take. And all this utter nonsense. But the propaganda behind it is so clever in selling the big lie that this advances, you know, Ainslinger's agenda. And so he keeps this up and makes U.S. policy, you know, ubiquitous. In other words, if you want to deal with the United States, do trade with them. You've got to follow our lead and put in these narcotic control laws. And, of course, along comes the U.N. and the Single Narcotics Drugs Convention in 1961. This is towards the end of Ainslinger's career. He's worked in this field for years, and he makes sure that cannabis in terms of its cultivation, production, etc., is front and centre in restrictions. So what is the Single Narcotics Drugs Convention? It's basically an international convention which provides for the licensing in the use of narcotic drugs exclusively for medical and scientific use and nothing else. Okay, That's the end of Ainslinger. But really you have to understand what happens next, the 60s. And, you know, you have the emergence of the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam movement, the hippies, etc. Cannabis has always been there. It gets very, very popular. And, of course, what happens is a lot of trouble in 1968. And, in essence, what you have is the Nixon administration. They decide they're going to make this a central plank of their policy. In other words... You know, they're setting out to effectively silence and punish those who kind of depart from their way of seeing things. And John Ehrlichman, who was one of the presidents of this man, as you know, is on record in in an article in Harper's Weekly back in the 80s saying, we knew this was all nonsense. But, you know, it was a very useful tactic to use this law to punish prosecute those who disagreed with the administration. And so they introduced the Controlled Substances Act in 1971. And this, of course, coincides with the Psychotropic Drug Convention 1972, and the war on drugs begins. So that's... So it's part part of the general culture war that has been bubbling under the surface in America for a long, long time. It's It's now out, but it was sort of in the background and cannabis prohibition is part of that story. Absolutely. And if you look back at the 1960s and you see the whole counterculture movement, environmental issue, you know, uh, feminism, gay rights, you know, in there, in that mix is cannabis. It's weed. Weed and psychedelics. And so what we're seeing very interestingly over the last 10 years, we can go back a little bit further, an incremental chipping away at the block of this international control system. And specifically, it starts with cannabis. Now, cannabis, after alcohol and tobacco, is the third most consumed drug, let's be honest. 
And according to The Lancet in their publication in 2010, a multi-criterion analysis of drug effects, the most harmful drug of them all was alcohol, and cannabis is way down the list. That much is accepted. So what happens, because this international convention limits it to scientific and medical use, advocates for the use of it, and cannabis does have therapeutic use. I mean, that has been acknowledged. In fact, it was an Irish physician in the 19th century by the name of William Brooke O'Shaughnessy pioneered research into cannabis therapeutics in India, brought it back to Britain. And you had a large amount of cannabis-based therapies in the 19th and early 20th century across the globe. And what effectively prohibition has done was destroy the research that had been built up, forestalled it, limited to almost ridiculous portions, any access to cannabis to carry out the research that is needed for the various therapeutic uses that it has. Yeah. So it's always been recognized that cannabis is therapeutic use. So what happens in around 1996 is you get California becoming the first jurisdiction to vote by popular initiative to regulate for uh, you know an internal market on medical cannabis. That's the beginning. But it's really in 2012 when Washington State and Colorado become the first two jurisdictions, again, by popular initiative, like a referendum, most of the people, they voted to regulate cannabis for adult use. And since then, 19 states in the United States have regulated cannabis for non-medical adult use and further 19 for medical use. In terms of sovereign jurisdictions, the first was Uruguay in 2013, um, most notably Canada in 2018. Now, there were also constitutional challenges in South Africa, Jamaica, Georgia, Mexico. So they also have, shall I say, legalized de facto, but the regulations still have to come on board. And of course, most recently, we've seen Malta at the end of 2021 and Germany's plans to regulate and that market will likely come on board in 2024. So the two pastes out of the chip. Absolutely fascinating, Niall. Absolutely fascinating. Listen, we're going to be back in a second and we're going to talk about the Irish angle in this, the comparison between Colorado and Ireland, and generally where this debate is likely to go, the economics of legalizing weed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. 
But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Now, Niall, it's, 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 it's fascinating. In your presentation that you sent us, you look at consumption levels, population levels, a contrast between Ireland and Colorado. And I think it really gets to the kind of the economics of this story, which is endlessly fascinating because it's culture, it's counterculture, it's prejudice. It's now, it is obviously a huge illegal business, which as you saw in the courts in Ireland, is incarcerating many, many thousands of people who probably are not anything other than users over the years. So let's talk about this contrast between Colorado and Ireland. Okay, so let's talk in a very clear comparison to begin with. Colorado has a regulated market for adult-use cannabis. What we have in Ireland is an unregulated, illicit market, which affords no protection to those who choose to use, and you can view that whatever way you want, and those, for example, who are self-medicating, who have conditions such as chronic pain, they were ex- excluded from our medical cannabis access program. So if you look at the figures, and the figures are very interesting, since Colorado regulated cannabis for adult use, that market has grown dramatically to the point that the total value of cannabis sales regulated cannabis sales in Colorado is 13 billion since the market went live in 2014. And out of that 13 billion, a total tax take of 2.2 billion has been generated. And that's an enormous amount of money. And then if you drill down further into that, you discover that 620 million of the tax that has been generated has been given to public education. In the intervening years, the Irish state has generated zero from prohibition. And as you know, as an economist, David, zero is the revenue, but the cost has been enormous. So how much money has the Irish state spent in that intervening period of time on upholding a system of prohibition which does not work. This unregulated, illicit market in Ireland, and we can never be absolutely certain how much it is actually worth. But as a general rule of thumb, if we look at kind of street prices, we kind of get the figure that it's worth somewhere around 1.3 billion. Per year? Per year. So the Colorado figure is 13 billion over the course of the last 10. So it's broad. So we're talking about 1.3 billion. So like for like, you know, we're talking about broadly the same level. Broadly the same level. Now, we have to make allowances for the fact that obviously the market in Colorado, which accelerated dramatically in the first few years it was open, has been just declining ever so slightly over the last 11 months. And that's because the market is maturing and also because other states 
principally on the East Coast, also in the Southwest, have regulated, are in the process of regulation. Yeah, so, so sort of weed tourism, that effect is kind of waning in, in Colorado. And this is it. And this is um, something that obviously is contributing somewhat to the decline. But maturity- Let's go back to the Irish case, because I mean, I think people listening to the podcast will be fascinated by the numbers, the costs. I mean, off the top of your head, you can, the cost, the courts, the prison service, the guards. These are basic things that we know. These are huge resources committed to prohibition. And then there's all extraneous social costs, et cetera. So let, let's keep going on these comparatives. I think I find them fascinating. Yeah, well, we can estimate. I mean, you need somebody to drill down into the data to get the precise figures. But on an estimate, if we were to model forward, we'd say that if we had a regulated market, we're probably looking at conservatively about 1.7 billion in sales, regular in, in revenue, yeah. in revenue, and then you know that in terms of the sales, and then whatever tax model. And of course, the big fear is always that if we even if we had regulated cannabis, the Department of Finance or somebody in there would come along and slap outrageously high taxes and defeat the. One of the major objectives of regulation is to remove or reduce to negligible proportions the profits that are derived by organized crime in this market. They control... So, so, let, let, so let, let's sort of tease that out a bit. So, look, so what you're saying is you take the average dealer's markup yeah. and you make sure that your tax rate is substantially below that. Yeah. this is. It's almost like you have to continue monitoring this all the time. What? Organized crime are those who control about 90% of the market. They're not stupid. We know this. So they'll always be looking to see if they can undercut a regulated market. And principally, if we just take what, what happens at the moment, no drug is made safe in the hands of organized crime. And as a result, and the same thing happened under alcohol prohibition, they pushed out beer with high-potency spirits, and we had industrial alcohols and all the sorts of things that really cause huge and harmful effect. And the similar thing happens under prohibition. So we get these very dangerous synthetic cannabinoids in the Irish market at the moment. This is this is skunk, is it? Oh yeah, this is spice and K2, and skunk is more the high potency THC. And therefore, there's no availability of the lower, you know, THC products that you traditionally would find in a regulated market, okay? Like mellow stuff. Yeah, the mellow stuff. You know, when you hear this, the, uh, the opponent saying, you know, it's not the same pot as your parents' pot, to a certain extent, they're right about this, but they're right for the wrong reasons. In other words, you know, no drug is made safe in the hands of organized crime. You're damaging public health overall by allowing them to have run of the market, when in truth, you can change that by having a regulation market and finding the balance between one, protecting public health, which is the primary goal. Two, of course, allowing for a commercial market that isn't like overrun by, I suppose, large conglomerates. This is the Canadian experience we talked about. But a number of you know small producers who meet the demands of the market. And then if from a public... Can, can I ask you what happened in Colorado or Canada to illegal drug consumption? Because the, the, the objective, as you say, is you're taking it out of the hands of criminal gangs into the hands of the states. You're doing it gradually yeah. and you're doing it willingly in the sense that the user is willingly switching their source, right? Yeah. So has, have we seen a 
significant reduction in illegal yes. drug revenues, gangs, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. Now, this takes time. And I suppose two things you have to separate out. Organized crime of about 90% of the market. And then what we would have is the traditional cannabis community that have always existed, the legacy market. You know, the home growers, they're not involved in crime. It's basically cannabis is their way of life, okay? Regulation does not remove organized crime, you know, straight away. It takes time. And what we're learning from the regulation markets, it's, it's really anywhere between three, four, and five years that we see the impact occurring. Yeah. So initially, when the regulation opens, people who probably never tried cannabis before are kind of curious or stayed away from it due to prohibition, and there are very few of them, to be absolutely honest. They go and they go to the market and they buy the stuff and they get used to it and they either like it or they don't like it, yada, yada. Okay, it's the novel experience. The legacy market, of course, would traditionally kind of look after themselves. They were targeted a bit. They were excluded from the market initially when it was regulated in Canada. It was a bit of a big mistake. And But now what we're seeing is because of prices coming down somewhat inadvertently due to overproduction, we're seeing the price and the value of the illicit market declining in the way that all of us wanted to see. So yeah, because that's the objective. The objective is to is to is it's a twofold objective. Yeah. But the main one is to get rid of the resources that propel drug gangs and propel young fellas in the main into that's joining it. into and becoming small time dealers, becoming big time dealers, and of course it's the outrageous and unbelievable violence that occurs. For market control. I mean, we know all this sort of stuff. So that's the objective. So it takes what you're saying is don't expect this to happen overnight. Everything adjusts, everyone adapts, the drug dealers adapt, the, the users adapt, and it takes maybe over a decade. Well, I wouldn't say over a decade, but it's certainly, yeah, we were talking five years really as a good rule of thumb. Now, none of the jurisdictions that have regulated to date have got it completely right. And, um, Interestingly, I talked to one of the foremost regulators in America, Dr. Kathy Hoffman from Washington State quite recently, and she's completed her PhD thesis on the initial markets of Colorado, Washington, and Oregon, pointing, you know, learning from what went wrong, yeah. what went right, as a kind of signpost to what jurisdictions like Ireland inevitably are going to do. So the era of cannabis prohibition, for example, is coming to an end. That much is clear. It's no longer a question of whether a country like Ireland regulates cannabis for adult use. It's now just a question of when and how you go about it. What's going to stir this and move this forward much more quickly, of course, Germany, the largest economy, most populous state in the European Union, once that goes, the domino effect. So then you will see Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, you know, Luxembourg, very advanced, Greece, Croatia, they're all going to go. And they put out a missive in the middle of July to the health ministers, principally in the drug control area, saying, look, this era of cannabis prohibition, it's not working. It's allowing organized crime to thrive. The market keeps growing. And we see that the route forward is effectively to regulation. So why don't you come and join us? So on the 6th and 7th of September, there's a meeting of health ministers. It's not formally on the agenda, but it's going to be discussed on the second day. So really what we have to start thinking as a country is not 
trying to get stuck into the stupidity of drug war populism of trying to be looking tough on drugs when this yeah. failed. Yeah, no, it, yeah as, as I know, the, the short is to get all Liz Truss on things. Oh yeah, and this is uh, this is part of the problem because it's a new it's a new Dave McWilliams sort of uh, expression. Just less of the Liz Truss shit, okay? Yeah, because that's that's what we're talking about. You know, the, and that goes back to our friends in the Prohibition movement a hundred years ago. And the Prince Martels of this world, okay? We know who they are. The problem for Ireland, and it's this, it's really a Marion Square dilemma, is that. We basically have a genetically modified version of the Misuse of Drugs Act from the UK in 1971. So we've almost been lockstep with our own Misuse of Drugs Act 77 as amended. But there comes a point in time, and we've seen this with the Northern Ireland Protocol, when do you tell them to get lost and you start doing your own thing, right? And we really need to go down this route. So forward thinking and planning. You can only delay the inevitable. That's what I would say to government ministers. But delay has a cost, and has a huge cost in terms of public health. It is a huge cost to those who are excluded from the medical cannabis access program. And the cost is ultimately to the young people in our society who are being pushed with synthetic cannabinoids and dangerous substances when there is a regulated alternative and we can put in the restrictions. Now, I think this is a very important point to continue to make, that prohibition doesn't make the drugs weaker. It makes them stronger. Absolutely. Yeah. I think people don't get that. So when I talk to people about smoking weed, and I haven't smoked weed for a long, long time because I get all paranoid, and I want to explain to me why is that actually. But they are worried about the impact of skunk and synthetic and and and, and all sorts of chemicals in the stuff. I think it's important to tell them like that shit is out there because it's unregulated. Yeah, that's that's what's pushed by criminal gangs. Yeah, okay, you have no I mean, idea what you're buying. Absolutely you have no, no idea. idea which, when you go out there, it's potluck. You don't know if you're getting hemp buds that have been sprayed with synthetic cannabinoids or, so, you know, some very, very high potency strain. You don't know. And therefore, wouldn't it be better that this person who chooses to use, and you make no value judgment on this, you know. Precisely, yeah. Yeah. You say, well, as an alternative, there is a dispensary. That dispensary is licensed, subject to regulation, from seed to sale. You know, there's a process that has to be gone through. They're subject to inspections, subject to all sorts of restrictions in terms of marketing, advertising, so on and so forth. And for those who are also very interested, I should say, have a shout out for Steve Rose of the Transform Drug Policy Foundation, who wrote, really is, the, I think, pretty much the definitive guide on how to regulate cannabis. And you can get it on the Transform Drug Policy uh, website or pay 15 euros for it read it uh, if you're a skeptic read it because yep. being a skeptic is a good thing but also being informed when they maybe kind of inch you towards a position where you say well i never thought of that before i never considered it i digest that's, that's always the eureka moment in conversations of, of anything it's that oh tell me that one again oh i haven't quite considered that well, I have to say, I was in San Francisco there uh, a couple of years back, and I walked into one of those dispensaries, and I was I was amazed because your man at the counter turns around to me and said, "Welcome, what do you want?" And I was like a kid in a sweet shop, and I went, "I don't know." I don't. But he but he went through. He whipped out a menu. He went through all the different strains, all the different strengths. This is mellow, this is giggly, this is dreamy, this is blah, 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 blah. But you had, you kind of knew what you were getting. Did you say all of the above, John? 
<laughs> yeah, you see that bag? Fill it yeah, up. Fill it up. Exactly. <laughs> and have you got some pizza to go with it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ready-made pizza. I've always been. I've always wondered about the prevalence of Domino's pizzas when I go to bed and the kids come home very late with their mates, and then I get up the next morning and know there are is a whole sea of cardboard boxes from Domino's. We're like, hmm, interesting, interesting. <laughs> How hungry you get at three in the morning? Oh, that smell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, listen, that has been. Really Really fascinating. Uh, I think it is, you know, I think you're absolutely right. This is only going one way. I think you're also absolutely right that Ireland tends to follow. So Germany sets the lead. Uh, I think there will be all sorts of, oh, we've got a land border with Britain and we have to stay and stay. It's that, that, all that's n- nonsense. But we know that economically, morally, and socially, this is the right thing to do. Yes, absolutely. And again, I come back to this point, you can only delay the inevitable, but delay has a cost. It is better to have a regulated model that is controlled. And again, that how that is achieved is another day's work. But if you want to protect public health, this is the best way to go about it. Prohibition has failed. And let's be honest right. about that. Niall Nelligan, on that definitive note, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating. We're going to come back to it. Uh, it it's going to be a live issue. And uh, it's clearly something on the agenda. Absolutely. Listen, thank you very much, uh, David and John. Pleasure talking to you this morning. There's John's uh, delivery. Uh, oh, man. Pizza man is here. Excellent. <laughs> and in order for John to enjoy his delivery in the peace and quiet of his own home, listening to the finest tunes, we will have Lucy McWilliams accompanying John Davis playing out with Break My Own Heart. You're never here when I'm with you But I'll be here if you want me to And just like smoke, I don't know where you go I'm trying to know the part of you That you don't know yourself Maybe I'm scared if I see inside I'll go and look for someone else
Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.